This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And in our episodes, we've been catching up with all the candidates in the running to be the next RECGP president. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Karen Price, a GP in Melbourne and the founder of GPs Down Under, and also the deputy chair of the RECGP in Victoria. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi, everyone. I'm just going to correct that because I'm a co-founder. And also, um, I think during the election, I'm not allowed to say I'm anything to do with the REC. I've got to step down from all those roles. But thank you. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that up. And Karen, many people would know you either from Twitter or from GPDU. But for those who don't, could you maybe start telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, yeah, I've been a GP for uh, probably nearly three decades and um, I've had a lot of roles, as you would do after that length of time. So I think GPDU is something I'm really proud of, GPs Down Under, which is the online platform of 8,000 doctors. It's It's been one of the most important platforms in Australian general practice engagement and we've been you know, really proud that that's opened up to um, you know, all, all GPs um, and it's only GPs, which is unique. Um, and as someone said, I've been I've been obviously administering and moderating discussions there for six or seven years. And as someone said, you've been you've proven that you can detoxify <laughs> because you know doctors can get burned out. They can get challenged by different things. And there's there's so much going on that um, you know we all get a little bit upset and demoralised and dispirited. And so um, I think that's that's been a really important role to shine a light on how perhaps some of the areas of medicine work in different parts of Australia and also how the colleges and how the politics works because it's a very different environment just to being in our practices and seeing patients. It's a it's a different paradigm in terms of the levels of trust, the levels of um, influence and, and how you navigate. You know, we're in a really high trust profession and I think we're one of the few high trust professions when you get out there in, in different aspects of the world. It's a it's a different value proposition. So I think that's been an interesting conversation to watch our leaders talk about it and, and other people who've been involved. And so what's brought you to the place where you decided to run for president this year? Um, well, I think like everybody, I've been, you know, looking at what's been happening in general practice. I've, I've um, you know, done a PhD so that I can inform on some of the areas that I think are being missed. I, I mean, in my the reason that GPDU exists is that I thought that there weren't wasn't enough engagement and conversation going on between everyday GPs and how that didn't feed back into advocacy and so forth. So um, the reason that I'm doing it is I think that all of those experiences have helped me. I've had lots of leadership roles in um, chairing various committees within the college. I've been involved with um, the last election going down to the Shadow Attorney General who's, who's in my... Um, my work electorate and talking to them about general practice and getting involved at that level and I thought you know you can hopefully start to influence and and those types of uh, interactions we've been involved at AMA in the sexual harassment of doctors with Kate Jenkins in the safe scripts and so forth and um, it's been it's been I guess eye-opening over the last few decades I really encourage everybody to try and if you've got time which is difficult to participate in some of these things because it's a really it they're all uh give you a a bigger meta view if you like of, of what's actually happening in our sector and we're, we're so busy that sometimes we forget that there's a you know that when you're a government representative you've got 
25 hungry birds wanting the worm. And, you know, they're, they're there to protect resources, which is our funding. And um, everyone thinks they've got a, um, an important role, which we all do have, but there's going to be rationing of funding. And so how that all works is really important insight, I think, for people. And I think I've got that insight. I've got the skills. Um, I know it was commented upon that normally the... Um, Ministers don't give you much time, but we spent over an hour with our local member just because of the way we were communicating. And I think I've got that skill. So I'm happy to bring it to all of our very important needs of advocacy. And as you've just pointed out, you do have your ear to the ground in a lot of different ways, whether mm. that's officially through the RECGP or in more informal settings online. Is there anything that you're hearing from members or you feel that? members have issues or things that they see as problematic with the RACGP that you as a leader would fix during your term? Um, well, where do we start, uh, Francine? I mean, you know, um, I think there's a big gulf of communication. You know, we have the, the national board and then we have the state councils and I've been involved in this, the state levels for a long time and, and, and so you get to see how that works. But once you leave the state faculties it tends to sort of peter out the, com the the communication which is sort of why and I know I spent a lot of time trying to um, push at the college to get better engagement and communication out to everybody um, and that sending out just a website or an email blast isn't always the best way because doctors miss it I mean even in, the, in being a member of the faculty I didn't always get to read the Friday facts or, or other emails so engagement is more about a two-way street and so I think that's that's uh, been an important part of GPs down under, filling in that gap. And I know that most of the leaders from most of the colleges, including the AMA, are on there, not participating, but watching. And so big issues for GPs are funding. Funding, work conditions, advocating power, the engagement with their colleges, pride in their work, getting more nimble responses, being inclusive, being, being, collaboration and, and being collaborative. And overall... Um, they want their college to be member focused and they they want a, a, a college that they can belong to and um, feel that they're protected by uh, having a large institution with a large government with a large um, budget that they can, you know, use in ways that are useful. And that's not to say that the college doesn't do it. So sometimes I, I feel a bit sorry for everybody who's working so hard within the colleges. Um, and it's just this gap. And it's a real gap of misunderstanding. And I think that's a really important thing that we need to fix. Um, and it's certainly on my agenda uh, in terms of um, developing more representative networks and community hubs. That's what I'll be doing. I've got a you know PhD that informs me on how to manage it and how to do it. I've got the experience of GPDU to, to show that I can achieve it. Um, and that's a really important part of including more GPs and to belong into the college and to hear from those who are perhaps in more isolated areas, in rural areas and so forth. So, um, you know, to to get a communication channel out into every part of Australia is, uh, I mean, that would be, I'd die happy if I did that. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we just, uh, we need to understand that we've all got very different work contexts. So having a top-down approach, whether from government or a college, is, is, a, is, a, is going to blindside some people. We're going to leave people out of that conversation. And I think we need to understand that our context um, is, is important. So lots of organisations do that, like the AMA have all their local divisions. And we all, if we're old enough, we all remember the divisions of general practice, which were doctor-led. 
And that's a really important part of what the college needs to roll out. There's lots of examples overseas. Um, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It's um, there's, there's ways and means of doing it. And historically and even to now, people think of the college and they think that it deals in three ways, in education, in political advocacy and governance. Do you think that one needs to become a focus area for the next two years for the college or do you think that they all yeah, need equal attention? That, that question, I think that's a wrong question. I think that we're a lot, the RACGP is a large organisation. There are many parts to the organisation. It's really complex. Um, and I think it can accommodate all of those. It must accommodate all of those. To try and hierarchical rank them is um, a, probably a false proposition. I think that, um, you know, the, the um, education and training for the, the registrars and, and the RTOs and the medical educators and supervisors is a key part of what needs to happen the advocacy can't be left behind it must must increase and improve Um, we must demonstrate that even though we've had lots and lots of meetings have they been effective so you know the money that has been spent on the advocacy and advertisement so far seems to have um, increased the presence in Canberra it's whether or not that has actually translated into outcomes and uh, I think those kind of um, analyses need to be asked of our college and our members who are there and to, to sort of just be responsive to making sure we get outcomes for the members. Could I maybe ask you to explain a little bit about the rebranding plan uh, that you've had in your policy yeah. about renaming GPs? Yeah, well, it's not renaming GPs at all. No, 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 no. And I think that was um, maybe that's a spurious interpretation. Um, and I'm so glad you've given me the right of reply. I know um, I've talked to a lot of people about this, and it's a suggestion that the, the important part, because doctors often get lost in the detail of this, is that we ring fence our specialty. We must say that we are specialist GPs and have that as a value proposition, explain that in a way that is understandable to patients. So that, um, you know, the, perhaps the second year out locum doing a, 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 um, a nighttime call is not confused with also being a GP. It might help the national conversation to know that someone who's a failed surgeon on a TV show can't just go out and be a rural doctor. I mean, you know, people need to understand that we, are, we have a fellowship and a specialty and we need to be really proud of it because it's, it's hard one. Ten years, 12 years of, of study from being a young person into your 30s is a, is a significant investment and that investment needs to be ring-fenced. And not only that, if we look at ACRAM, they've done it, you know, they've done it. They haven't changed the name of their college. They haven't changed the name of GP. They've, they've, but they've got a rural generalist there. And that's going to attract extra funding. And so this is actually tied into a whole strategy that is going to um, increase our ability to um, manage some of that funding, some of those funding propositions. The other part of the rebranding is simply to make sure that the RACGP is a, a brand that the patients can understand is associated with really world-class quality and standards for general practice. So if, if um, the listeners just have a think about you know, MCAL put a chem, put an advertisement up on their on the TV every every sort of fifteen, you know, ad break, whatever, and it's MCAL is a brand patients can trust. Really simple, really effective. RACGP needs to be a brand that uh, patients can recognise is associated with standards and quality. So there's two aspects to that, and they're both marketable for us to um, help patients make that quality decision. When you ask people 
what does a quality what does quality mean in general practice we we often have a really hard time explaining it because it's it's a qualitative thing it's a longitudinal output it's um you know the, the effects of what we do are not often seen in practice um i mean like a great example of that is a thunderstorm asthma story in melbourne and uh someone from the department of health rang me and said oh karen we've got this big conference happening and nobody they're not having a conversation about general practice they're just having a conversation about uh, you know, paramedics and um, hospitals and what happened in Thunderstorm Asthma in 2016 in Melbourne. And so I put it up on GPDU and said, did anybody notice anything around, I think it was November 21? And I got a few people said, oh, yeah, I saw an extra two, I saw an extra three, somebody had to resuscitate someone in Geelong, someone had to, um, you know, there was, a, there was a couple and I had a few extra, I had some of my regular asthma patients with exacerbations, which we managed. Nothing really startling. Um, and then I went to IPN, who have a database, and rang Jed Foley, who they were able to do through their research division, got the data together and showed, just through the coding of asthma, enormous, enormous change on that day in what general practitioners had uh, done across all of their centres. This was a really powerful statement to the Department of Health and to the other organisations present there that general practice just simply got on with the job. We were so elastic. We took care of our business. We didn't miss a beat in our day. We didn't, um, you know, uh, obviously we managed patients in, in a way that was um, responsible and we just coped with it. And it's such a it's such a great story. Individually, we thought, oh, yeah, a couple of extra, no big deal. But when you saw it on paper, the capacity of general practice to respond was enormous. And that's a really important story. It, we've seen it macroscopically with COVID. We've seen it macroscopically with the bushfires, that general practice being left out of the equation, and yet we are, we are in the thick of it. And we do it individually, um, but added up together, we are an enormous force for good in the health sector of the community. And I think that's a story that's a, a really important one. Thanks so much for explaining that, Karen. And I think it's also good that you contextualised it like that because it leads to my next question of, you know, that GP story is so valuable, but sometimes it feels like it's not being heard over some of the other voices and lobby powers in Canberra. Mm. Mm. What would be your concrete steps or plan to improve well, the lobby power yeah. of general practice? As I said, there's no point going in there and telling everybody how good we are. Or um, even really even talking about our longitudinal outcomes. We know the evidence. We don't need more research. We've, we've, the research is well established. World Health Organization, Starfield and so on. Uh, you know, we've, it's all there. Uh, what we need is to understand what moves a politician. And what moves a politician is an electoral cycle. What moves a politician are patient voices in their electorates. That is how the pathology people managed to get their uh, pathology rental situation changed just before the last election. And just before the last election, it became, as you may remember, a Medicare election. This is the Medicare is a sacred cow of the community. And we've got an election coming up in 2022. We need to harness our patients to be involved in a discussion about the value of general practice to them. We need to discuss, uh, get them mobilised. I'm going to form a national council of primary care doctors and include really relevant not-for-profit patient organisations who can um, talk about the need for access to high quality general practice in the community. And that means they need to be resourced through the return of taxpayer dollars in the social contract that is Medicare. 
they need to be arguing for their access to general practice. When we start mobilising and using this in a strategic way, just as the pathologists did, we're going to get action because that's what the government fears. And part of the, I believe, the loss of the CPD homes, um, the change in legislation has been perhaps an attempt, maybe I'm cynical, to deplatform the colleges, maybe uh, to fragment us again, to fragment our voice. And I think we need to be really cognizant. This is a political landscape. There is a scramble for resources. There is a scramble for funding. Everybody says they're important, and they are. And it's going to be about how we shape that conversation and how we use the uh, instruments of negotiation and leverage in a way that helps us get listened to. And telling the story of how good we are and morally, um, you know, what a great thing general practice is, is, of course, helpful, but it doesn't motivate them like an electorate saying, we want, we don't want you to defund Medicare. That's a really important point. And that's why we need a National Council of Primary Care Doctors united with patient organisations and uh, the, who can be in the government face regularly, including if we make sure we've got small ads visible all the time on, to, on, on the media, where, you know, uh, RACGP is a brand patients can trust, then we, we are going to have a much more powerful voice and a much better ability to access the funding that GPs deserve. When the CPD legislation comes to pass the Senate, I was going to ask what you would think would make the college still a valuable proposition for members to stay and not leave. Yeah, I think this is about providing um, um, a very attractive college that is more than just a CPD home, and and it's 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 more than um, something that just provides a CPD reporting to APRA. I mean, the risk is that without a college, uh, we're going to have North American providers and all sorts of commercial providers, um, you know, supplying CPD, but that's. Uh, one part of the college and if we can't advocate and if we can't organize and if we can't provide community then we're going to be even more isolated than we are already from government and from each other and that would be a huge loss to our to our community to not be able to have a united front I think that we need to as I said talk about the community hubs where we can have the divisions of RACGP where we've got things happening in the local context where physicians, you know, GPs together can lead their communities through different needs of education, through different uh, social enterprise needs and involve the allied health people in community responses that are meaningful. If we start to provide that with a voice back up into the um, nether regions of the RACGP, then I think that starts to provide a value proposition. If we're providing an ability for the uh, members to market their practices as a quality and standards practice, that becomes a value proposition to members. If we we need to be responsive to the members, we need to listen to the critics, we need to be able to be nimble in those responses. And, um, you know, my PhD is all about peer connection. And uh, I think we need to do better as a, as a, as a uh, member-led organisation. And the last question that I've been asking all the candidates is maybe the biggest question. What is the main message for your campaign that you'd like to tell Australian GPs? The main message for my campaign is that we need 35,000 votes sitting behind the president when they go into the boardroom at RACGP and we, because that means you've got a mandate. I, I need everybody to vote, for me hopefully, but everyone to vote in this election because and, and that we need to take that 35,000 votes up to Canberra because 
if the next president can stand in front of Greg Hunt or whoever might be the next um, health minister, <laughs> um, with 35,000 votes, you get noticed. When we go in with, you know, 2,000 or 3,000 or maybe a total pool of 5,000 votes, the politicians know numbers, they will deal in numbers, and they know that's a disengaged general practice. So I think we need to really organise all our friends, all our colleagues to vote in this election. It's a really important one. We're going to be facing things like pay for performance and all sorts of KPIs and things. Lots of changes ahead with the government's 10-year plans. We need to be in there really fighting hard for what we, what we need and what we deserve to do, our job that we trained for. Dr Price, thank you so much for your time and for chatting to me. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Francine. For anyone who would like to find out more either about Dr Karen Price or her campaign, I'll put a link to the candidate website on the Medical Republic page where this podcast is posted so you can have more of a read or watch her candidate video. And you can also tune in to the other podcasts that I've done with the other candidates by either subscribing here or looking under the podcast tab of our website. Catch you next time.